Hi, everyone. Dave here from C-Lab Podcast. If you're finding value in this podcast, we'd really like to get to know who you are. So we're going to ask you to click on our site and add yourself to our mailing list. We're going to agree not to spam you, but at some point in the future, we may have special events, certain podcasts we want you to join on, or we might even throw in a class or two. So sign up today. It's not going to cost you anything. And again, we promise not to bug you. Thanks, everybody. Welcome to C-Lab, the customer education lab, where we take customer education myths and misconceptions and banish them to the outside lands where they belong. I am Adam Evermescu, and I am so happy to welcome Mike DiGregorio to the show. Hi, Mike. Hi, Adam. How's it going? Yeah, great. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Oh, I'm so happy to have you on the show, too. Been a big fan for a very long time, so I'm super, super excited to uh, to talk to you on the C Lab podcast. Well, as as I was saying earlier, I'm excited to have you on too because I feel like having seen you in the customer education community for so long, I feel like we we have this parasocial relationship already. So I'm, I'm happy to bring that into a, an actual relationship today. Uh, yeah, we feel like old friends already, and we just <laughs> met. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's it's a perfect day to uh, start forming those relationships because uh, we are actually on the national day of the one of the smallest and uh, probably most tight knit states. It is National Vermont Day. Love it. I have a team member from Vermont, so I, that's an amazing day to be celebrating on the podcast. <laughs> Do you want to shout out your team member? Yeah, shout out Haley. Yeah, love Haley from Vermont. Uh, she's right. an expert in the world of higher ed <laughs> publishing, so we're very happy to be working with her. Excellent, excellent. Hi, Haley from Vermont. Uh, hope hope you're having a great National Vermont Day. <laughs> hope you're enjoying maple syrup. Is that is that what they have in Vermont? That's what that's what we had in Montreal. I just assumed that we we used to get TV from Vermont when I was growing up in Montreal, so I, I knew all the, like the Vermont uh, stations. I am as Toronto a Toronto person you can be, so I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, so we're fighting. <laughs> I didn't yes, realize that we were, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If we, if so we have we to do the Montreal friends, Toronto actually. thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we can if you renounce your, uh, your loyalty to Toronto. Oh, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, maybe, maybe we'll sing uh, Informer by Snow later. But for now, let's get into it. So, Mike, I think it would be helpful maybe if you could tell the audience a little bit about yourself and, and what you do. Uh, and how that ties into some of the instructional design topics that we'll talk about today. Yeah, thanks. So I manage our team of instructional designers at Top Hat. Top Hat is a higher education company. We build courseware for higher ed. So stuff like um, like in-class live lecture response, online textbooks, online tests. So I lead the instructional design team there. Um, externally, customer education is what we do, but um, given that we live and breathe in the world of higher ed, um, we, we go by instructional designers uh, internally and with all of our customers who are primarily uh, professors in, at universities, colleges, and even uh, what you would call uh, centers for teaching and learning at, uh, at universities. So that's, uh, that's what we do at TopHat, and uh, that's the team I lead. That's, that's super cool, and that gives you a really unique perspective, I think. Uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is you, you have such a unique perspective on instructional design and learning experience design because you're doing it as a customer educator, but you're also doing it for an audience of people who also do it as their jobs. It's very meta. Uh, my joke is that I educate the educators, and I'm like the answer to that question. Uh, but it's a, like a real unique space because a lot of times also our customers are experts in this field. And so um, like it, it's a real nice challenge as a customer educator because you really have to come prepped with your material and your suggestions and techniques uh, because they are really looking at it with a, a keen and critical eye. And, and you have to make sure everything you're doing is um, evidence-based and sound and you're steering everybody in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's so interesting and, and one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you as well, because, you know, we, we've done some instructional design episodes on the show before. Uh, I like to do a little series called Instructional Design 101. But, you know, when I when I think about the opportunities out there for people getting into this field or, or perhaps for more experienced uh, learning experience designers, instructional designers who are making the switch into customer education from either internal or uh, higher ed, 
there are so many opportunities to go beyond that instructional design 101 and really start mm-hmm. thinking about some of these uh, evidence-based techniques and, and, and practices. Yeah, 100%. Um, the interesting thing for me when I think about like the history of instructional design is that it really started out, or, or one of, the, one of the, the places where it began was in the military in the US. Uh, mm-hmm. And when you think about it, um, it makes a lot of sense because instructional design should be able to produce an output that is repeatable with a series of like instructional techniques. And it's, just, it's very, very clear what you're going to get out of it by going through the same instruction over and over again. Um, and, and that, um, for a variety of reasons, became very popular, especially once you know, courses went digital and, and the internet became a thing you know, around you know, the turn of the millennium. Uh, but over the last, I, I mean, uh, like let's say 10 years or so for sure, um, there's been this pivot to learning experience design. And I think our community and the customer ed channel really breeze this as well as any community can, um, because there's so much that can go into thinking about your learning design, the learning products you're creating, how you're architecting learning, um, that goes well beyond just making sure your lesson itself is sound. Um, there's, a, there's a lot that needs to go into it, right from um, like persona research to user research to um, like the design of your, of your material. Um, the, there's a, a quote, which is not mine, um, but I'll, I'll share. In the, in the phrase learning experience design, uh, no word should weigh more than the other. So all three are important. Um, learning is important. So they're all equally important in that phrase. Uh, and I think that's a very nice way to think about um, it. Like, like keep yourself grounded as you are trying to make a pivot to more evidence-based practices. That learning is important. needs to be evidence-based. The user experience is very important. also needs to be evidence-based. So does the design of your materials also need to be good. So all those things really have to work in conjunction. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because you, as you started describing the role of uh, learning experience design, where you started sounded to me a lot like UX design uh, or, or even UX research in, in some cases, and less maybe like what we might consider traditional instructional design or some of the practices that originally came out of the, the military or some of the early learning research. I, I would be curious to, to hear your perspective, Mike, and I realize that there are many different perspectives on this depending on who you ask, but What's the what's the difference between instructional design and learning experience design? Is there a difference? Are they just fancy names for yes. the same thing? Like, tell me a little bit about that. No. So the the key difference is that one is focused on the learner and the learning, and the other is focused on coaching the coach, so to speak. Uh, and if you want to be learner centered, or in our case, customer centered, um, you like that's that's the key difference. Right. Instructional design is, let's say, like a coaching behavior for yourself to make sure everything is is coherent and sound. But um, LXD should really, really start with the learner and their um, like what 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 the what you can call like their moment of need or like what moment of need they're in. Right. And how they will be learning and like the messy business of actually just doing the learning, which is never going to be this pristinely designed kind of experience. Right. Like they're they're learning it in. Um, in like the real world in some way, probably maybe in, in like in some kind of emergency at work, right? And then like they'll need to learn something. Uh, and so like really need to be learner centered is, is the key, key difference. I see. So, so help me from a very practical perspective. I'd love to yes. unpack that a little bit. So like you might have someone who is an instructional designer and they follow something like the Addy process or, or maybe even Sam where they, they do that savvy start to begin with. And mm-hmm. so you might have someone who's calling themselves an instructional designer, but saying, hey, you know what? I do an analysis phase or I do a savvy start. And the first thing that I do, or, or maybe I even do like action mapping by, by Kathy Moore or something like that. And I'm actually going to start yeah. with the performance problem. I'm going to unpack some of those assumptions about my learner and what they need to learn. Uh, is, that, is that learning experience designed by a different name or is that still fundamentally different from what you're describing? No, I, I mean, I would say I think it's a learning experience designed by a different name. I, I, and I, I love Kathy Moore's action mapping. I will say that um, I do too. because I think what, yeah, I absolutely love it. Um, you're, you're, you're bringing up an interesting topic, though, because I think a lot of a lot of constraints on the field of LXD 
um, and, and learning in general is are really the, the result, I think, of expectations from like higher up the corporate ladder and what the expectation around learning might be and why something like Kirkpatrick's model persists because it's very easy to, to see and to measure the big event of learning where we have the training and everybody gets a smile sheet at the end of it. Um, where, whereas like the, the messy business of learning is probably happening in, in many more different ways that you need to still be attuned to because that's um, when somebody actually needs to apply the thing that they're learning. Um, but to, to answer your, so to go back to your question, um, yeah, I think it's, it's LXD by a different name. And um, I mean, my experience with it has been that the, the models around like doing learning analysis and breaking down or deconstructing a learning experience, these things are all very good to do. And it kind of doesn't matter which one you choose to employ. Um, I, I, I like to like, whenever I've done this, it's been like, um, you know, over a, a glass of whiskey in the dead of night and just like trying to like, like deconstruct something we're doing to, to see how it works. Um, there's a great <laughs> um, sort of five, there's a great five elements of learning design model by a guy named Andre Plow, um, who modeled it after sort of UX uh, research and UX design. Um, and it, it, it's worked really well for me to deconstruct a lot of what we do. And, and you're thinking there, um, so really specifically about what the learner is experiencing, how they're doing it, the the very like minutia of their interaction, et cetera, et cetera. But like ultimately, um, I don't I don't know that that's effective to like communicate to let's say an executive at your company. It's very useful though for you to know so that way you know how to communicate what's relevant. Um, so I would so yeah, this this is like really how I approach it. Like the and from what I've seen, useful for me has been you know, using these models to break down something we're doing in a way that helps me understand what to communicate and, and what to adjust and change. So so it's not like what I'm hearing, they're, they're not completely different fields, obviously, where instructional design and learning experience design have no matrix of overlap. But oh, some of it is like the, the fundamental model that you use to yes. solve the problem and the, the fundamental model you use to approach what that learning experience actually is. Yes, absolutely. An easy way to think of it is a Venn diagram, two circles, instructional design and like user research or UX design. And the overlap of those two is um, traditionally thought of to be LXD, be the easiest way to, to think through it. So 100%, you need to incorporate a lot of the good learnings and habits from instructional design um, and, yeah. and then pull in all of these other fields that are, are super, super relevant to uh, designing a good learning experience. That, that totally makes sense. And and the other thing that I'm hearing is, as you were describing that is that there's there's maybe two, I want to say cruxes, but that's probably not the uh, the plural of crux. It's probably two cruces uh, where where they where, where they differ. Uh, one is around measurement and, and we should we should definitely get into measurement and talk about the smile sheet and Kirkpatrick and being able to you know tie to different, ultimately different forms of measurement and output. And and the other is maybe what the intervention actually is, because when you're designing for, uh, you know, human performance, you're not necessarily making the assumption that the unit of uh, output is always a training. And when you're talking to the executive, you know, this, this is where I kind of heard you going when you were talking about Kathy Moore and we were talking about reporting to the executive is that a lot of the times in more traditional instructional design, uh, you have an executive come to you and says, like, we need a course on this. And you go and you produce the course on this and you design it, and you develop it and you implement it. And then you do Kirkpatrick's evaluation on it. Whereas uh, LXD might have a little bit more of that design thinking, human performance aspect to it. Am I am I getting those cruises right? You're, you're at, yes, I, um, I'll confess that I think crux is a Latin word. I know ancient Greek, sadly, from my academic days, but not Latin, so I have no idea what the plural is. Uh, but yeah, the, the the two the two pillars are yeah, hundred percent correct. And, <laughs> pillars, thank you. <laughs> uh, better. And I, yeah, I would say the um, yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that I mean the old like seventy twenty ten rule, right? Like you know, ten percent mm-hmm. of training is is done. Um, in a formal setting, 20% in kind of like quasi-formal settings, coaching from your um, like direct managers, et cetera, and then 70% on the job from your peers, right? Yeah. Uh, but then like when, when you think about resourcing though, 90% of resources go into the 10% of training, the, like the formal training, not the 90% of where you're actually doing and learning um, more effectively. So I think LXD provides a nice framework for flipping that model in a way that actually you, you can then start to spend money and resources and time 
um, like more appropriately and in a much more aligned way to where people are actually learning. Uh, but then you don't again like the, what's missing is then like the big event, right? Which is easy to measure, and so all of the small events become harder to measure. And on the note of measurement, often what we're doing is, uh, and this has come up in in a lot of conversations in the customer ed channel, we are often pushing on some leading indicator. The lagging indicator isn't there for a long time, and so you really have to make good decisions for what. You know, what are the one or two levers you want to push like in this moment with your learning, uh, with your learning program? So that way you get that output that you need um, or that you want to see in like six to 12 months. And it's not always it's not always um, going to be immediately relevant. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point, because learning, unlike some other some other things in the world that can be measured, doesn't have this immediate, uh, you know, immediate output. Uh, you, and, and furthermore, it's going to be a little bit messy in terms of some of the other signals that might interfere with it. Because in customer education, for instance, you're going to see some of those longer tail measures uh, interact with other things that the customer might be doing in that time period. So there's not necessarily always a way to correlate, and certainly in a lot of cases, not a lot of ways to uh, do a causal analysis of, say, whether a customer taking this training then later led to a renewal. So I'd be yeah. really curious to hear... Your point of view, I know there's been a lot of work done recently on uh, thinking about how we assess and measure learning. I know Will Talheimer has, uh, you know, done a lot of work to take us beyond the smile sheet. And I'm, I'm using his, yes. I'm, I'm quoting him there. Uh, how do we think about this for customer education, knowing that our, our metrics can be inherently a little bit messy? So th- what, I, what I've tried to do, and this isn't maybe a great solution, I've just tried to measure more and more things to try and find more and more ways to correlate. And so like every possible point of measurement um, is like the, is, is, has been my approach to it. And Talheimer, um, his, and I'd recommend his book for anybody you know, if who's listening for whom he might be a new name. Um, although he's, he's got, I think, an addition to quickly, uh, <laughs> quickly on the yeah. way. So he just said, he said proviso, don't buy the old book. Yeah, he did say don't buy the old book, didn't he? So with that proviso, um, I'll, I'll, I'll share what I've learned, which is maybe now entirely wrong. But what we did was we used Tallheimer's, or what I did was I, I, I used Tallheimer's um, survey measurement to measure our customer training, not just from satisfaction anymore, which was nice. Like it's a nice you know shout out in Slack when somebody gets a good uh, a survey after a training, but ultimately. We want to know that customers are actually applying and motivated to apply the things that they're learning and that they're having a good experience as that's happening. And so we started measuring motivate. We started measuring all of those things with, with, uh, with, with different kinds of questions, right? How motivated are you to apply the learning? How much do you remember from the last time you learned? Um, you know, what, overall, what was your learning experience like? You know, would you recommend this to a friend, et cetera, et cetera? Like, so we were trying to like, take this, the stuff that worked from the old world that you want to know, like just in general, do people enjoy the learning? But then also, are they, do they understand that, like how to apply what they've learned? Are they motivated to do so? Do they know where to go when they need help? Do they feel that they're being supported in that endeavor? Uh, because the other benefit of moving away from just like the scale of one to 10 score on how well the learning session was, is that you then get to start to communicate what good learning looks like to like every to other decision makers in your company, and then they start to see through just the way that you're measuring your your customer training and the output from it what good training should look like, and then um, you can you know in that way then start to argue for things like you know a little bit more resourcing or more patience for like just the learning learning event itself and so on and so on. So um, that's it's been uh, that's been a nice change that we've made and we get some really really nice feedback from it and what customers are expecting out of the training events that we that we put together that's really interesting so so in some ways it's about unpacking that generic smile sheet one to ten or sad to happy or you yeah, put exactly. the faces on it uh, and really asking details that actually start to if we if we put the analogy back to something like Kirkpatrick actually using some of those, post-training surveys to actually ask deeper questions about what they learned, what they're going to do with it, how they're going to apply, uh, maybe not necessarily getting all the way to business impact because a learner isn't necessarily going to be able to tell you all of that. But mm-hmm. um, So that, that, that's interesting that you can actually get at some of that uh, while you're also collecting the leading indicators on, on learning satisfaction. Yeah. Um, and 
Tallheimer, um, maybe you've seen this, Andrew, he's like pretty critical of Kirkpatrick and the Kirkpatrick model and its mm-hmm. inability to bridge levels two and three, and that there's nothing yep. in the model that can help you actually see if the learning is working. Um, uh, now, having said that, um, it's also important that like as learning professionals, you do need to just develop a good learning, like a good learning experience, right? And like that's, it's not all about output. Um, like we're also learning professionals and Tullheimer likes to use the phrase learning architect, um, which is a sort of nice turn of phrase, but like you can't, can't dismiss the fact that just the, the actual lesson you're providing, be it, um, like in your customer LMS or if it's, uh, you know, you get to be on site and do it, you know, in person again, um, like that still has to be a good experience, but there, we really need to focus when it comes to measurement and impact on how we are bridging, you know, just the learning and then the changing of behavior and how we're supporting that change. So surveys also, like um, also months later or even weeks later from the time that you did the training are very informative in terms of how your initial training went and can, and can direct you into how to adjust it or what to do or how to supplement it because it's never going to be done, right? The, the, that work of, of the training and the educating is not going to be done. So um, yeah. really thinking on how you can bridge levels two and three in Kirkpatrick's model is uh, very important. Can uh, can really un- un- that, that can really be the scale engine, right? If if you have to like like put a, a pin on some part of it, um, that's 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 where you can really start to scale things. Yeah. So so tell me a little bit more about that. I'd love to hear like what kinds of decisions you might make based on the uh, the input that you get from your surveys. Now that you're collecting this richer data, mm-hmm. how you might use that to. Uh, you know, improve a course or follow up with the client or, or what, what do you do with all that information? Yeah, what we do with all this, so we, we look at it and we, we measure churn, <laughs> right? Like, like, like everybody else, measure re- renewal and retention and make sure the customer experience is good and unified. Uh, because the other, I think the other nice thing that LXD will do um, in conjunction with, uh, it, it's funny, I, I, I started to like really take a deep dive into LXD at the same time as I was reading um, Chief Cust- the Chief Customer Officer book by Gene Bliss, and they really like coalesce nicely together because the entire customer journey is essentially a very long um, learning journey, right? And you need it to feel coherent. So um, measuring the like, kind of the same things at different points that 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 are happening with the customer, with marketing, with sales, with customer success, out at post sale and through the renewal, um, all, you, you end up with a lot of nice insight. But on top of that, it has to be married also with just regular product behavior and, you know, product analytics and are people doing the behaviors that they should be doing after having gone through your learning, your learning program and that learning regimen. Um, like, so really understanding all, like what those are and also understanding at the beginning, what are the things that your best customers are doing um, but then also like what the domain says your customers should be doing with your product. Very easy for me to do this in, in higher ed because there's a whole vast body of literature on what good teaching in university looks like, which I then just need to like, make come to life in, in the product. But um, like ma- sort of like closing the loop with the like the, the performance focused surveys, then also app behavior, then having all this feedback into how you are designing and, um, and the, the sort of, you know, uh, courses that you're designing and delivering. Um, and then also with a splash, I'll just add of like actual like conversations with customers. I do this routinely. <laughs> Somebody goes through our micro badging. We, we call it top hat certification, but it's, it's a lowercase C certification. It's a it's mm-hmm. project based, you know, micro badge. Um, and you know, I'm just like always talking to them, like talking to as many people as I can who go through it to make sure that we are delivering what they were expecting. They're motivated to apply these things. You know, you, you adjust the content based on you know, the, the evidence you collect. And um, I've learned over the years now doing this that the gaps I thought we had in our learning experience were not the gaps that the customers were identifying in the learning experience. So I would have been you know, way, way off had we not just done, uh, we not like treated our learning as a product and done user interviews on it. Mm. So if you had just gone and done your own retrospectives, which I'm sure you also do, uh, <laughs> the things that you would want to fix in the next iteration or the things that you see coming you know, from your product roadmap, actually have very little or less overlap than you would think with what customers are telling you in those surveys. Exactly. Exactly. Or in in the interviews, not the surveys. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Precisely. Yeah. So it's a real holistic picture you want to get of your of your learner um, for the sake of informing your learner persona. Right. And uh, I know that all of us are going to be very familiar with customer personas, but these are very different from learner personas. Your buyer persona is not who's learning. Um, mm-hmm. we, we face this very acutely. In fact, I think lo- I suspect much of the audience would face this acutely. Uh, I call it the customer who's bamboozled into using the product. You have mm, no choice. Yeah. 
and they don't get to go through any kind of emotional buying journey that sells them on the dream. And so you have to incorporate that into the beginning of your customer education process and your the learning design of your, your onboarding and um, and the maturity journey that you're mapping out for everybody. And like and so anyway, so without that, um, like, yeah, it's a, it's going to be incomplete if you don't have that that really holistic picture of, of who your learner persona is versus your buyer persona. And and do you do you go and develop specific learner personas that you then map your design to? Um, I I want to, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so so the so it's funny. The, as I was as I was prepping for this conversation today, I was thinking about this old work on personas, and I, and I like had some like half baked personas for this, and then I realized, you know what, we're gonna end up talking about this, and then Adam's gonna ask me about it. I'm gonna have to confess I haven't actually done it properly. <laughs> Uh, but in the in the spirit of you know design thinking and iteration, like yeah, we'll go back and adjust. Um, and at least in the case of my product, like the top hat has grown as a product and what we do so quickly in such a short time that the persona I mapped out like two three years ago are not going to be the same personas that we're uh, designing for today. So um, I would just like I'm not going to beat myself up too much about it. But I do feel yeah. a, a twinge of guilt. No, Mike, I think it's actually really helpful for people to hear that because, you know, you, you sometimes you go to a conference, say, and someone talks about their amazing program and they're puffing up and they're not telling you about the stuff that they haven't done or haven't had time to do yet or haven't prioritized. And, you know, you know, as they're up there talking about that, that there's something like that, because we all have something like that. In fact, oh, most of us have many, many things like that, that, many yeah, that we that we would go that sound like a really great idea, but we just haven't really been able to prioritize them yet. And, and in fact, with Persona specifically, I noticed that that's work that a lot of people don't necessarily do, uh, you know, and create their own specific learner personas. But what some people do and what I've done in the past as well is there are other teams at your company who might be doing this work and not just mapping out buyer personas, but might actually be mapping out customer personas. And you can inherit those at least on, on your learning team. So, for example, at Slack previously, we've had our, our UX research team and our product team come up with user personas and, and customer personas. And we've been able to use those to, to inform our philosophy and, and our curriculum. Uh, at Optimizely, we had something similar in the past. Uh, I'm trying to remember what team initiated that. But the point is, like, you don't necessarily always need to do this work from square one within your customer education team. Yes, 100%. Uh, and I think it's a good reminder, too, that um, education um, is and, and another like learning for me, it's like sort of aside from instructional design, is that there's many people who want to have a stake in customer education when they start to see the impact it can have with all different parts of the customer journey. Uh, and so use it as an opportunity to build those bridges with, you know, and, and to see how customer ed can really, you know, impact all those different parts of the customer journey and, and how you can play a role there. Because um, I think it's a really, like, it, and, and LXD can really give you some language to and like and thinking through the different parts of it and different disciplines that make it up, right? That make up the larger super discipline um, can really help you just navigate those conversations internally if you're struggling. That that makes a lot of sense, and it also helps probably in some ways translate the language of instructional design to the language of the business, which can always be a hurdle. So I'd, I'd love to hurdle. dig into that. Yeah, a huge <laughs> hurdle. I, I'd love to dig into that a little bit because when we're talking about the design of an individual course or a solution that you're you're coming up with, there are some evidence-based practices that have been emerging. Uh, some of those fly in the face of, uh, you know, like, like we like to say in the intro to the show, some of the myths and misconceptions about uh, how learning actually works. Um, so mm -hmm. when you're when you're thinking about design, I would love to hear a little bit about how you incorporate some of these evidence-based practices into your customer education program. And, and maybe in some ways, like how, how you use them to enhance learning transfer. Because ultimately, mm -hmm. if, we, if we've done some of our, our research and we know who our personas are and we know what their job to be done is and what performance outcome we want them to have and we're refining based on our, our, our feedback, we still ultimately have to like <laughs> design the course or, or design the solution. Yes. So what, what's actually, what, what, what techniques are evidence-based? What's out there? What should we be doing? How do you, how do you think about incorporating them? Uh, I love this question. I love this question. And they're like chain the, five questions. Yeah. It's well, the first thing I would say we, so every, every time we have a, a new customer, a new group of customers, the very first thing we ask is what your goals are. 
Um, and it's funny, they don't know how to answer that question, even though they probably told our sales rep at some time, right, that they knew what mm-hmm. they wanted to get out of the product. Um, and the, re- the reason that I, I think like you have to start there because the emotional investment in learning will actually make the learning better. It's the first thing. So they you need to tie everything you're doing back to that goal that your your customer, your learner has. Um, and then they'll be self-motivated and driven to um, to seek it, right? And, and ultimately you want them to be, mo- you want to like drive them with that internal motivation as much as possible to seek the thing. And you need to show them the baby steps along the way that they're actually doing well with it, right? <laughs> so like, like it, it, this is yeah. gonna sound really funny. Just like, just be a good coach, right? Like, you know, just like you know, show them how well they're doing, share the good news with them, even if it's small, like, you know, just like fake it a little bit. And then they'll, you'll, you'll drive them to, to you know, great behavior. Um, second thing is we really strive as much as possible to, to build something that's going to be immediately relevant for their life, right? So in my case, mm-hmm. it's um, like as soon as as soon as you start your training program with Top Hat, you're building like a week's worth of material to deliver to your class, and you know at the end of your first hour with us, you can you can go do this, right? It's ready to use. Um, there, you're you're ready to go. You understand the basics of um, like how, how to make your dream of like the future you come to life in a small way right now. Um, so, so just make sure everything is like immediately relevant can, can immediately be used. There's no you know, extraneous material, um, which then, you know, because the like learning transfer really excels when the learning can replicate the real world environment in which you're going to have to apply the learning, right? That's a, it's a key thing. So the more that you can build that into your customer education, um, process and, and training, the better off your customers will be, and the more successful and quick, quick, the more quickly you can measure the outputs of your of your training because the you're replicating the environment in which um, the the you, the learning environment is replicating the environment in which the applying has to happen, the application yeah. has to happen, which is yeah, a okay. criticism of Bloom's right. That, oh uh, yes, like like learners are not apt to think in a pyramid scheme. Of how you might be learning, right? It's just like nothing. Like right, you not don't, you don't learn facts, and then and then you start like uh, yeah. you know evaluating the fact. Oh, no, I'm doing blooms in the wrong order. But no, yeah. in fact, going backwards is actually much more successful according to the literature. If you start with the creation and the generation, it's called of like the concepts without having any prior knowledge of it, you'll end up probably learning faster and more effectively. Um, so it's a it's a turning it on its head. It's usually yeah. a lot more effective. And, well, because that, 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 that gets a relevance, right? Yeah, exactly. It gets to relevance, 100%. Yeah. And the other thing is that good learning uh, sucks. Uh, and by, what I mean by that is that good learning, if you're a learner, is really hard and painful. And so one of the one of the great, I guess, uh, like puzzles of just measuring a, like measuring satisfaction or a smile sheet is that if you create an experience that feels good, your your mm. customers and learners may not have actually learned anything, and and they sat through a real fun presentation. The work of learning is often hard and difficult, and um, so you have to find a balance between like the like, like real challenging training and just like fluffy great fun hour to spend together. There's a, yeah. some, there's, a there's a median between those two where um you can you can really um you you should really be aiming for. I think good learning sucks. Now we, we have our episode title, but how do you how do you <laughs> so how do you how do you how do you bridge that gap though? Like let's let's say for a moment yes. in customer education, we're we're often in a position where we are sometimes we're educating people who have to be there, um, and maybe someone bought the software and then they have to be there because they're implementing the software. But a lot of the times they don't, right? A lot of the times we are working with a very distributed customer base or we have an opt-in program and or customer education is playing almost a marketing function. Um, how do we balance that, that on one hand, that desire for effectiveness and for learning transfer to make sure that what they learn in the classroom will actually be transferred to their, their day-to-day job uh, with, with needing that rigor but on the other hand, knowing that this is opt-in and we have to like actually get them to voluntarily uh, raise their hand to have this sucky experience that we know is ultimately for their own good. Yes. Um, so it's it's a funny thing with learning too. Um, it turns out that if you just tell learners at the beginning why something is hard or why it's designed a certain way, they will buy into it more. So if you are designing something that feels really tough, 
Um, so I can imagine like you need to learn how to do cross filters in Salesforce with custom objects or some real nasty thing, right? Like that's not really a fun thing to learn, but if it, if like you, you can highlight at the beginning of it that, you know, this is why it's going to feel challenging and hard. Mm-hmm. This is why we've designed it this way. Trust us. Uh, and by the way, here's the great thing you can do at the end of the whole learning program. And you're really going to be uh, like, like beyond just a badge on LinkedIn. Like here's the actual tangible thing in your real life. The better version of yourself is, you know, Sam Holick likes to say, right. That, um, yeah. that, that, that you can get by going through this somewhat, you know, arduous training process and customer education, um, uh, program, you know, that's, uh, it's all for the better. And so like, really just like, like not like just being really transparent with learners is the key there. Telling them why you're doing something, why it might feel different, why it might not be like a different training, like another training program that you've seen. Expectations before they go through the LMS module on on um, what they'll need to produce at the end of it. So all they're they're anchored in all these things, and you can reduce some anxiety and get some buy-in and build some trust even asynchronously, and you know through a through a screen. Okay, so on one hand, you've you've set the stage for them in terms of what they're actually going to be able to do and and what they're going mm-hmm. to be able to do should be relevant enough to their job. There, there should be kind of a clear why. Uh, you also mentioned earlier that there should be some sort of like emotional connection to the learning or, or some sort of personal resonance, which makes me think a little bit about, uh, I think I've heard Nick Shackleton Jones talk about this, how learning is ultimately effective. And mm-hmm. uh, that's affective with, with an A, not effective with an E. Yes. And, and so if you're not making some sort of emotional connection with what you're learning, you are less likely to retain it. So in some ways, the fact that it, it is it might be a challenging experience or might be unpleasant at times, mm-hmm. helping the learner understand that connection up front um, and that this might not feel like super happy and pleasant and, and frictionless all the time uh, gets them, helps them go on the journey. It, th- those yes, are some ab- of the things ab- that I'm hearing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then what helps with it also is like constant feedback. The more that mm. you can give feedback, the better. Uh, and the more, if you can figure out how to give feedback asynchronously, that still feels personalized even better. Um, so like all this stuff can go a long way. Um, a, a simple technique I've used because my, uh, one of our certification courses just runs asynchronously all the time and it's self-paced. And, um, you know, when I, when I look at the sort of discussions happening between different users, um, if, if something's good, I'll just out of nowhere email that customer and they're always very appreciative they thought no you know they 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 think they're typing into a void and Mm -hmm. then when it turns out that you find you find something good and you you reinforce the good behavior and they're very appreciative of it right and it's a very small thing but um i think what's important there is just the habit of trying to find connections with your learners at every opportunity to then allow them to keep you know keep finding that internal motivation to drive forward with their own learning um so that way they can be we, we can feel like we're less enabling them and more uh, or enabling the bad behaviors, as I've heard you say before, and 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 more just uh, helping them, uh, helping support them to uh, to to get what they need out of our products. Yeah, yeah. So this this kind of makes me think as well when we go into the design realm. Maybe maybe bad behaviors just made me think about it. <laughs> there are some pretty persistent myths in the world about what uh, you know what doesn't doesn't work in learning. Uh, there are some ones that instructional designers love to pick on uh, mm-hmm. learning styles. Uh, I think there's some really <laughs> controversial stuff, you know, within like the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve. And then there's stuff that, that is evidence-based and we've, mm-hmm. we've seen to work at least through, uh, you know, reliable and repeatable uh, and valid experiments. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, in, in, in your view, what you think uh, works, what, what doesn't work and maybe how you've, uh, Incorporated some of the pieces that really do work and are evidence-based into your own program. Absolutely. So I, uh, so I, I love the point about learning styles. So let me tell a quick story um, because I, you know, teaching teaching university professors is interesting, but sometimes they're cognitive psychologists who are themselves, you know, experts <laughs> in the science of learning and how the brain works in my audience, and you know, I have to teach them something. That's amazing. Um, but when when I uh, when I get to a point about learning styles, often I. I, I I got I got a like yes from the first year cognitive psych prof because I said learning <laughs> styles are entirely debunked. Don't listen to them, and let me tell you why they've stuck around so often. It's because when you build when you when you build for three different learning styles, you actually end up by act. It's like two wrongs make a right. You accidentally build something that's 
universally designed for learning that allows your learners multiple ways to actually do something and that repetition and retrieval in different environments in different ways is actually like really good but it's it's based mm. on because like, you've actually created that <laughs> you've actually created double barreled learning which is effective but you yes, created exactly. it for the wrong but, reasons for the totally wrong reasons and with the wrong intention, right? But it ends up working. Um, so, and and the other thing is, I think that it, um, all, I think all of us are in customer ed because we're probably good learners, right? And um, we will unconsciously just end up like reflecting the way that we learn onto the world, right? Thinking mm-hmm. that oh, I I learned it this way, so it must be good, and and so therefore a text written slideshow is like is great because it's how I learned, but also because we're good learners, we probably have things that bad learners don't have, like good self-control in learning and the ability to like pull things together through a messy presentation. And so you end up just like through some kind of like weird intrinsic trait that most of us have here of just being good learners and, and knowing how to learn, <laughs> um, that we end up like, like replicating some, some bad behaviors. Um, and also, I think the uh, I know we uh, like the, the you know, seductive details are a fun topic. Um, the what all so I, I think now the the literature is also like very clear on this that there's a lot of distraction and the cognitive load is just too much for things like talking heads or text flying in, etc. Um, but what's uh, what's interesting is that there's a, there's a way to do it well um, if you're super super conscious of how what you're saying and what you're showing can reinforce each other. So um, this is something that we've tried to do um, when we run, like when we run in-person trainings, virtual trainings, um, asynchronous or self-paced stuff, the words and the visuals need to reinforce each other. And there shouldn't be duplication and there shouldn't be anything extraneous either. So mm-hmm. if you can if, if you can really think about those two paths, because your short-term memory works on these two paths and it's somewhat independently, so figure out how to, how to keep it simple and like pull back the extraneous stuff and just work on on something that's textual, graphical um, at the same time, then you can really reinforce the learning in an effective way. So uh, that's that's how we've tried to bring it to life, right? So like, so, and, and that, that's kind of the idea of, of double-barreled learning is having that like multimodal yeah. experience, but where you have you have two forms of media that directly reinforce each other, no distractions. No, so, so there's a difference you're saying, you know, between Gosh, what would be a good example of this? Like having, um, having like a graphic so the, on the screen. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. If you have, I was gonna say. So when when I, when I when I teach this concept, I try to have a very clear slide <laughs> that I'm talking over, right? Uh, and like, mm-hmm. and it's like visually reinforces the thing I'm saying. Um, you, we do this. Um, so when I teach my team about something called flipped learning or team-based learning, and make them do it by actually learning the thing, so they're just immersed in the experience as they're learning it, right? And and so it's like the same kind of idea. You're 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 trying to do two things at once using all the media available to you. Um, but like, but again, it's the difficulty there is moderating your your desire to go crazy with, you know, like design elements, etc. Because you you really got to pull it back. Um, turns out that sim- the the simplest things are the best for learning. Um, mm-hmm. which, it, which is, again, when we think about, um, uh, it, we think about like the external pressures on, on us as designers of learning, you know, you want it to look great, but sometimes just black text on a slide is enough, you know, one word to reinforce the main thing of the you know, 60 second talk track that you have is, is enough to transfer the knowledge and uh, that should be the focus. In, instead of feeling the pressure to make everything we do like a full scale marketing production where we have talking heads and background music and, and all of that because yeah. there's a certain point where that's not actually reinforcing the learning point that's adding what what you call seductive details right the, yes. yeah. the things that will actually distract us and overwhelm us and, and overwhelm our working memory and that's when we talk about cognitive load, that's what we're talking about yes exactly and then and good learners though can can parse their way through that um, which is I think the challenge for us like the we have to really check ourselves as customer educators because I think all of us are good learners and we probably can make our way through some uh, badly designed learning and still think it's good um, so we should we should be careful yeah so, sort of like how oftentimes when you're working with a SME they will recommend that you teach the course the same way they learn that subject matter not realizing that you, you can't just like open up their head and and create a universal experience you know exactly yeah it's 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 it's, it's a it's a tough thing <laughs> Yeah. So maybe maybe last one before we uh, we have to call it a, an episode. 
What about, um, you know, there's been a lot of research, uh, and, and one, of, one of my favorite books around this is Make It Stick. Oh, uh, yes. And I'm not going to remember all the, all the co-authors on, on that book, yeah. but they talk a lot about some of the proven techniques around retrieval, uh, space practice, interleaving, basically ways that you can uh, knowledge check yourself to encode that information. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that and, and how you've used some of those techniques? Yes. So th- this is it's, it's these techniques that I was thinking of when I said good learning sucks <laughs> because they're really mm-hmm. hard and they're very disorienting. Um, so when you think about how you learned something or the last time you learned a new skill, you probably went about it via mass practice, right? You just like tried to memorize a thing uh, and, and really go through, just like like spend some time concentrating on something for an hour or two. Um, and that kind of practice is really good for like short-term retrieval. Um, mm-hmm. If you need to, like I, I need to know something by the end of the day, I just need to spend an hour studying it um, you know, right now. So that works. Long-term though, horrible, does not work. And so that's where you need to do things like retrieval practice, space retrieval, because it turns out that the way your brain works, the best, uh, the best, I mean, the best thing for it is just practicing retrieving the information. And the more that you can practice retrieving it in an environment that represents where you actually need to apply it, the better for learning. So um, that's, that's all retrieval practices is just the testing effect, testing yourself over and over again. Space retrieval is spacing this out um, in, in ways that make sense. And interleaving is, it's my favorite one and is very interesting. And it's admittedly, this is a really hard one for, for me to incorporate because um, it, it's just so, it's kind of so bananas when you describe it. <laughs> so what you want to do is, um, before you finish teaching a topic, you need to throw in parts of the next thing that you want to cover. And then before you've even done that one, you throw in the third topic. And then by the time it comes to do a formal assessment, you're measuring all these things together. But that's actually how you learn, right? And this is certainly how you live day to day when you have to retrieve these things. You don't just get to, you know, um, you have learning objective one and then you just have to think and work within learning objective one. You're pulling in things yeah. that you know from all over the place. And so interleaving is meant to replicate that that real world learning experience in a structured way. Uh, and it, But for, at least from, from my experience, it's been hard to, to build into our, our own learning, our own customer education program. Uh, but we talk about it a lot with our professors who then can go do it in their class. <laughs> yeah, it might be easier so, when, when you yeah. have that, that sort of structure around your learning program. But hey, let's, let's issue this challenge to our listeners. If you have a program where you have a, a learning path with a sequence of courses that, that are meant to go linear, linearly, or if you're running, say, multi-hour, multi-day learning workshops where you have the opportunity to do uh, progressive knowledge checks, uh, look up interleaving. Uh, see if you can experiment with this. There might be some really good creative opportunities to actually work it into your program and see how it resonates. Yeah, and I think the the main thing is like the disorient the disorientation for learners, which you can get around again just by being transparent with um, with how you are designing your learning at the beginning. And and luckily, this is something I learned from a very good educator that I get to work with, who's a longtime customer at Top Hat. Uh, so I, I get to I get to cheat a little bit because the experts in the field are customers of ours, right? Um, <laughs> that, it's really it's a nice thing, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a yeah, interleaving is very very effective if if it can be done well. Um, and and you know all of this is reminding me, Adam. Like actually, the way I introduce these concepts um, when I'm talking about them and trying to teach them is reminding people that they don't have to be a cognitive psychologist to be a good teacher, but also that there's a world that isn't just anecdotes of things that kind of worked when I tried them. Mm-hmm. And so there's like a like usually like learn there's like learning tips that your friend did, and then there's the stuff yeah. there's like the brain science, and there's, so there's a sweet spot in the middle which I think all of us are trying to occupy. And so if we can just keep that firmly in view with, you know, trying to, to test the things that we think work, incorporating the, the science uh, you know, and the, the good evidence-based practices where we can, um, we're, we're going to be in really, really great shape as a, you know, as a bunch of experts in, in customer education. I, I agree. And, and drawing upon a thread that you said earlier, sharing that, that transparency with your learners, uh, if you've helped them understand from the very beginning of the learning experience, how this is going to be relevant to them, but also why you're going to do some of the things that you're going to do in the course and ultimately how that's going to benefit them, then, then you're helping bring them on the journey too. So I really, I love that as a, as a light bulb moment as well. Absolutely. So Mike, um, as we wrap up, yes. I'm sure there are many, many books, courses, blogs, resources out there for people who want to get 
deeper into this field, do you have any recommendations on, uh, you know, if if, you, uh, if anyone's listening who maybe doesn't have a formal background in ID or LXD, yes. uh, what would you recommend to them? So uh, just let me let me preface this by saying um, I I did not have any formal background before I actually ha- had to start doing the the job as an accidental instructional designer like so many others. Um, <laughs> like the one benefit uh, is that so coming out of academia is that I had read all of the books that were informing academic practice for you know twenty five hundred years and I bit my tongue when you were talking about affective because I wrote my dissertation on that. So, oh, did you? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I should then, I should have so quoted then, you, not Nick Shackleton Jones. Uh, no. Abs, absolutely not. <laughs> Nothing worth quoting in that dissertation. <laughs> uh, but uh, nonetheless, um, so there's there's a course. Uh, so there's there's LXD courses kind of everywhere now. A few years ago, I took an intro to learning experience design uh, at the University of Toronto, which I know a few of us in the Customer Ed channel now have too. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I would recommend that one only from personal experience. Um, great books on this. Um, oh, you know what? I, okay, I'm sorry. I'd have to think about that. Um, the the trying so I, I love make it stick. I love all of the all of the resources from retrievalpractice.org. Very very good. Um, the and and you know everything in the user research uh, and user onboarding realm. Like I, I really like Sam Hulick's mm-hmm. book. Um, like I thought that was really good. Uh, and, and I I mean. I'm pulling from a lot of things here, but I would say ultimately, like just just read, just start, and like start seeing <laughs> how this stuff can be incorporated into your own learning design and learning journey and customer education journey. Um, I, I, I have a debt of gratitude to your book, which really helped me think strategically about um, customer education and and what it means. And there's the the theory and practice of like pristine customer ed, and then there's the messy business of what it means at mm-hmm. you know your particular company and your particular moment with your particular customers and that really helped uh, like you you really helped clarify that for me and i suspect many others too um so thank you yeah so i'll start there um but yeah that, uh, so there's a very nice book um called intentional tech um which, which is it geared towards a higher ed audience but uh by Derek Bruff, which I which I got a lot out of some some neat stuff you can try in there, um, but yeah, there's Legion, <laughs> so many so many yeah, things. I know there's so my, much. My favorite yeah, book on customer ed. Read. I know my favorite book on customer ed is bizarrely the Challenger Sale. I think it's actually oh, a book about yeah. customer education, um, and I'm like nobody believes me on this, but I'm like no, this is entirely a book about customer ed. It's not a book about sales. This no, is a book I agree. About this is a book about customer education. And, and there's the uh, Challenger customer as well, which is yes. just as relevant, if not more so. 100% relevant. How to train a group and how to win a group over and you know, change management with all this stuff. So like, there's um, so, so you can find customer education everywhere when you start looking, um, which is sort of why my, my, my recommendations here are all scattered and all over the place. Well, we'll see if we can curate uh, these in the episode description or, or on our website at customer.education. And uh, maybe a few others that we think of afterwards, because you're oh, right, there are so I mean, many. Donna Weber's book there. was amazing, right? Yeah, I just finished oh, yeah. that one. So. Onboarding yeah. Matters. Yeah, we had her yeah, on the show not too long ago. Yeah. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really great talking to you about the nitty gritty of learning experience design. Oh, Adam, it was, a, it was an honor and a pleasure. And uh, I'll, I'll it, cheer for Montreal once in your honor. <laughs> the next time I can. All right. But only once. All right. Well, yeah, you know what? I'll take it. I'll take it. Maybe okay. maybe I'll give you one back in the, in the one Toronto. Uh, well, if people want to find you, Mike, where, where can they find you? Um, so they can find me, Mike underscore Diggs, on uh, Twitter. Uh, the, the handle is because I was a very early adopter of Twitter. Uh, and Mike D. Gregorio on LinkedIn. Um, the, the only Mike D currently at Top Hat, although we have many Mikes, the only Mike D. So it should be easy to find. And if you want to email me, MikeD at TopEd.com, happy to chat, happy to chat. And of course, in the Customer Ed Network. Shoot me a line. That's right. That's right. Well, good. We'll we'll, we'll see you around the way over there. And uh, for our listeners, until next time, keep on educating, keep on experimenting and finding the others. And thank you very much.